play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, comedian and actor Paul Reiser. Paul starred in Mad About You with Helen Hunt. He also co-created the show, he co-wrote the theme song, and he played piano on the track. And I just realized that Paul Reiser starred in My Two Dads. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. I didn't either, but when I think back, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that was him. That was a show that made me want to change my name to Stacy because the girl who was the star, her name was Stacy, and she looked super cool. She also looked how they described Stacy on the Babysitter's Club. But I digress. Most recently, Paul Reiser has been on Stranger Things. He created a show called Here's Johnny. And five years ago, Paul went back to stand-up comedy. It felt exactly as it felt when I was 18 in that it was just as exciting and just as hard and just as fun. And there aren't that many things that you can replicate (laughs) from being 18. As I got off stage, I thought, oh, yeah, there's a reason I love doing this. Thanks to Paul, we're going to highlight a New York City institution, Barney Greengrass, a restaurant and appetizing store on the Upper West Side. Now, we'll explain what an appetizing store is later in the show, but Barney Greengrass has been serving up scrambled eggs with sturgeon, bagels with lox, and black and white cookies in New York City since 1908. And Gary Greengrass is the third generation owner. I always say the place is like a comfortable shoe. When sort of the city and the neighborhood and, you know, everything moves forward and changes, it's nice to come back and see something that hasn't changed. But first, my conversation with Paul Reiser. Hello. Hey, is this Rachel? It is. Is this Paul? It is indeed. How are you? Are you in Seattle as we speak? I am. Are you in the hotel as my phone says that you are? Yeah. Does it say that? It does. Yeah. I'm not that psychic. I only have a little bit of magic about me. You're very good. You're very good. Thank you. So let's just talk briefly about your childhood. Were you a funny kid? How did you get into comedy in the first place? Was I funny? I think I was a funny kid. Um... I kind of was drawn to comedy. I, I, I loved watching comics. I didn't know as a kid that you could do that. I didn't know that was an option. I just, But I remember being drawn to it, you know, in the same way that you, whatever it is that you like in life. So when I was in high school and I started going to clubs in the village in New York and I would see George Carlin before he got really big and Robert Klein before he really broke out um, and David Steinberg. And the path was, well, if you go to these clubs... Uh, and you start hanging out, well, then you get on stage, and then, you know, the career will happen, which is, in fact, the dumbest career plan you can have. Because <laughs> it, it doesn't work like that at all. No. It just happened to have worked out. So that was nice. But once his acting career took off, Paul moved away from stand-up for decades. But now he's back to touring. It was something that I was meant to do, and I always meant to get back to it, and it, for some reason it took me longer than I planned. You know, there are a lot of comics who got into stand-up only so they could find, you know, hopefully get a TV show or something, and then they would abandon uh, stand-up. And to me, that was never the goal. My goal actually was to be a stand-up, and everything else kind of accidentally worked out nicely. Getting back to it has been like the most fun thing, to be honest. There's nothing I love more than being on stage. 
That's awesome. I did stand up three times and then bombed on my third time and never did it again. So you're a better yeah. you're a better man than me. <laughs> well, that's enough. It's so scary. You know, somebody, somebody once said, and I, a great give me a great piece of advice years ago when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and 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 they said if there's something else you can do, do that. And which I thought was a great test for for anybody because whatever you do, it's going to be hard. So if you don't have the drive to make it through all the hard stuff, it ain't going to work out anyway. For those of us who do stand up, it's like well, it wasn't like a choice. It wasn't like we could have done without it. So it it uh, it felt right. And after having taken so many years off, it really was uh, exciting. You're always learning how to do it. You never actually get it. It's like a moving target. You never quite get it exactly right you know for me i always get off and think oh now i know what i could do better next time there's always something to try tomorrow okay so talking about a different part of your childhood i read on wikipedia which knows all that your it's dad true. all right know, whatever it is then it is not true that your dad was a wholesale health food distributor is that true that is true okay it is in fact true so i was curious how you ate growing up if that infiltrated your life if you were like the only kid in the 60s who was eating you know sprouted tofu and hippie food no no he the the irony of that is we were so not into health foods at all he started it kind of uh What's the word to look at? He was kind of a prescient in a way, and he he did not think, you know, this is going to be a big business someday. It was just something he started like in the 40s, and there was no health food world at the time. He didn't come to it because he was actually into eating well. It was just uh, a job opportunity that came, and, and he started his own company. He would bring stuff home, and we would have stuff, and we had vitamins and stuff in our house that other pe- people didn't have, but we would be eating them right after a big fatty brisket. Uh-huh. You know? So it's like, well, here's some uh, very, here's some vitamins that'll be good for you, and maybe cut against the huge chunks of beef that you just ate. <laughs> he's like a coke dealer who doesn't do coke. Like he's not, he's not exactly. going to eat the merchandise. Just, exactly, <laughs> moving so the funny. merchandise. Yeah, and you grew up in New York, so the brisket makes sense. Exactly. So, Where are you from? I am from the Bay Area, but my mother is from the Bronx and Brooklyn, and so I grew up with, like, a black and white cookie instead of a heart. They shipped them out from New York? Where did you get a black and white cookie in San Francisco? We would only get that when we visited back east, but it's funny. I'm 38, and even when I was a kid, you know, you couldn't get a lot of the foods shipped back and forth. So we would uh, mail sourdough bread to our relatives back east, which I'm sure you can get now in New York. Uh, But it's funny. It's like the world was even so much smaller 30 years ago. But now the black and white cookie... Is, is an interesting thing because it is a sort of a regional thing. And there's something about the cookie part itself. It's black and white for people who don't know it because it's, it's one half is chocolate icing, the other half is vanilla icing. The cookie part itself is some uh, uh, mysterious uh, substance that cakes up in the roof of your mouth, sort yeah. of like peanut butter, that if you take it too big a bite, you can't speak for 40 to 45 minutes because it just gums you up. We don't yeah. know what that is. Um, and that's when you, you need to just gulp coffee or something. Too. It's very cakey. It and I actually just got back from New York a couple of days ago and I bought some for my mom at Barney Greengrass. And the totally they were all sticking to the roof of my mouth. Did you get the little ones? Or I the got big the, ones. Cause... They didn't have the big ones. I had to get the okay. little ones. OK. Yeah. Well, then that's very sensible of you. So despite the fact that food is shipped all around the world and we can pretty much get whatever we want, wherever we want it, the black and white cookie has remained pretty much a New York thing. In case you're unfamiliar, a black and white cookie is a big, round, white, cakey cookie, frosted half chocolate and half vanilla, and it's either fondant 
or frosting. The New York Times says it's technically not really a cookie, but what they call a drop cake, something I've never heard of before. The batter is like a cake batter, but thicker with more flour. So when you plop it onto the cookie sheet, it doesn't spread out. And when the cookie bakes, they form this little dome shape. So you take it out of the oven, you let it cool, you flip it over, and you frost the flat side. So they're flat on top and rounded on the bottom. And we have learned through this podcast that the origin of many foods is debatable. A lot of people have a lot of opinions about the history of the black and white cookie. So according to a Munchies piece written by Joanne Spataro, the black and white cookie was the result of a dessert trend from the end of the 19th century. And I love this. I never think about that foods are trending, you know, in other centuries. So at this time, it was really cool to bring dark and light elements together, like a vanilla cake with layers of chocolate frosting. And this extended into design as well and architecture. So you would see, you know, black and white tiles. You would see light and dark wood floors and also in ceramics. So before this time, cookies had always been thin and crisp. But this trend of bigger, cakier cookies started to come out. So it only made sense to apply the dark and light cake trend to this new cookie. Some say the cookie was invented by Glazer's Bake Shop in New York City, which was opened in 1902 by Bavarian immigrants and just shut its doors this past summer. But Stephen Schmidt, member of the Experts Bureau of the Culinary Historians of New York, told Munchies that he doesn't think this cookie came from any cultural tradition. He thinks it was purely commercial. The bakers were capitalizing on the trends of the time. And I'm just going to tell a little story because it amused producer Aaron but he has also met my mom, so maybe that's why. But I love a Rachel's mom story. <laughs> Buckle in, everybody. So I was in New York a couple months ago, and I went and I got my mom some black and white cookies because she grew up with them. And we went on a trip the next week. I delivered them to her, and she admitted that she doesn't like the vanilla side of the black and white cookie. So like a four-year-old child... <laughs> I watched as she ate the chocolate side totally normally, and instead of just throwing the other half away, she scraped the cookie with her teeth away from the frosting and left like a bunch of frosting powder all over the table. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, when you're 69 years old, you can still eat like a baby. So she never at any point attempted to remove the frosting from the cookie. She went to eat the cookie away from the frosting. Yeah, because the vanilla frosting was so gross. (laughs) Time for a little break, but when we come back, Paul Reiser shares his last meal. Just a ferry ride away from Seattle is the Kitsap Peninsula, a land of gorgeous forests, sparkling water for kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding, and adorable seaside towns with locally-owned boutiques and family-owned restaurants. I have done so many day trips to the Kitsap Peninsula, wine tasting on Bainbridge Island, a girl's trip to Paul's Bow, ice cream and architecture in Port Gamble, watching the seals play from the beach in Port Orchard, and I still haven't seen it all. If you're like me and like off-the-beaten-path places where the locals vacation, you are going to love the Kitsap Peninsula. And this month, we're talking about Bremerton and Silverdale. So Bremerton is known as a naval town, and there are museums if you're into the big ships. But the restaurant scene has been really growing over the past several years. Grab a bowl of clam chowder or homemade lumpia at Bremerton's veteran-owned Axe and Arrow. And visit a land and gardens to see meticulously trimmed bonsai and a tree that has been around since 300 BC. Plan your visit. Go to visitkitsap.com slash your last meal. You can also find a link in the show notes. Play instead 
stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. So let's talk about what you would want for your last meal. What is a food well, that's might, really special? Well, might go right there. It might go to Barney Greengrass. Really? Uh, because there's a good chance that it's going to be your last meal anyway. You know, just eating it could kill you. Um, <laughs> you know what? I would, I would probably want something. Uh, if it was my last meal and my life was still going good, I would probably get something very slow and um, in its preparation, uh, like Peking duck. Because that takes like 24 hours in advance, so I, I would want I would want the extra day. I probably you know you wouldn't want like instant soup. You wouldn't have ramen as your last meal. I would hope not. Um, so something slow, and um, but you know a, a Barney Greengrass um, could do it. An onion bagel with just the right the, the type of locks. This and, is the most I've ever talked about uh, locks, frankly, not just on, uh, publicly, just in life. Is it feel like a therapy session? Kind of does. Kinda does. <laughs> So you live in L.A. now. Do you have nostalgic moments for these kinds of East Coast foods that you can really only get in New York? Oh, no, more than, more than uh, you, I should. In fact, it's funny that you would mention Barney Greengrass because that, that is the, it's one of the oldest places in New York, and uh, that's one of my uh, meccas that I always go to uh, whenever I'm in New York. And my kids, who were born in Los Angeles, oddly have New York accents. And, really? Uh, love going to Barney Greengrass. Yeah, so <laughs> that's... Um, and it's one of the few places in the in the country that looks exactly as it did 70 years ago. Nothing has changed. This is yes. an old world, uh, uh, they call it appetizing, but it's really, you know, smoked fish and bagels and, and very Jewy food. Yeah, I was wondering where they call it appetizing, because when I go to New York, the first thing I do when I get off the plane is I go straight to Russ and Daughters. And that's the same way. It's Russ and Daughters appetizing. I don't know. I think it came from some, I once read something about why it came from some sort of German word, but... I don't know, because you would think all food should be appetizing. You want an appetite. Um, there's no store that's called unappetizing, because that would not really take off. Not very good there's marketing. that would sell. But appetizing, it's an interesting word, and somebody, your next week's guest, will have to fill that in. Well, I'll just fill that in right now. Appetizing stores started to open in New York City in the early 1900s, along with a huge population of Eastern European Jews who immigrated there. And if you keep kosher, as many of those people did, you cannot mix meat with dairy. So the deli was created to strictly sell meat, and the appetizing store only sold dairy and fish and everything that you would eat with a bagel. Pickled things, salads, spreads. According to Thrillist, there were as many appetizing shops in New York in the 1930s as there are now Starbucks and McDonald's combined. About 500 stores. Now, shed small tear, there are less than a dozen. Paul Reiser's last meal is an onion bagel with locks from Barney Greengrass. And Barney Greengrass is one of the best places in the country to have smoked fish. It is a New York institution. Barney Greengrass. Hi, can I speak with Gary, please? Yeah, who's calling? My name's Rachel Bell. Sure. 
sure one moment. For great gift suggestions, check out BarneyGreengrass.com, where you can peruse our full menu of specialty foods. From bagels to borscht and bialis to babka, it's all just a click away. We'll be with you momentarily. Hi. Hi, it's your best friend in Seattle. Gary Greengrass is the third generation owner of Barney Greengrass, and he is just the schmoozing, dad joke making character that you would want behind the counter. My line is when people come in and they we kibitz with them a little too much. says, next time there'll be a cover charge, I tell them two borscht minimum. Barney Greengrass was started by Gary's grandfather, Barney Greengrass, <laughs> in 1908 in Harlem. And he moved to our present location in 1929. He specialized in smoked fish, Nova Scotia, sturgeon, sable, whitefish. The store is known as Barney Greengrass, the Sturgeon King. In the old days, we've been known as an appetizing store, which um, it's a term not used commonly today, but that would refer to those dairy items, the smoked fish items, cheese blintzes, and things like that. And does that mean that it's kosher? Is that what appetizing kind of guaranteed? No, not necessarily. If you pay the rabbi, that'll guarantee you kosher. <laughs> no, it's then did the store get passed down to your dad and then to you? Yes, so my father was in business with his father. My father's name was Mo, and then he passed it down to me. So I'm the third generation, the one that runs it into the ground. <laughs> the last of Barney Greengrass by Gary Greengrass. Ho- hopefully not. Barney Greengrass is both a restaurant and a shop. So you can sit down for a plate of eggs scrambled with sturgeon and onions with a bialy on the side. And by the way, a bialy is always in the bagel category, but it's not really a bagel. There's no hole. Um, it's flatter. It usually has caramelized onions on the top. So it's kind of more like a roll, but it's in the bagel family. You can have homemade chopped liver with rye bread or a bowl of matzo ball soup, or you can order a smoked fish platter to go. Maybe pick up a babka on your way home from work. This is old school Ashkenazi Jewish food. There are stewed prunes on the menu, pickled herring and cream sauce, our signature dish in the egg department is Nova Scotia scrambled with eggs and onions, the house specialty. If you come into the store on a weekend, at least one every other table is dining on uh, Nova Scotia eggs and onions. Our most popular sandwich is Nova Scotia and cream peas on a bagel and all different varieties. If it's tomato, onion, however the customer prefers to have it. Or sturgeon, which is our, our moniker. Classic way to have it is sturgeon on rye with a slice of onion and butter. Ooh. It is a big deal to keep a restaurant open for more than 100 years. Restaurants are notorious for going out of business. They stayed open through the Great Depression, through both world wars, through all kinds of economic fluctuation, not to mention food trends. Food trends come and go. Taste change. The Jewish population in New York has shrunk, and this is Jewish food. And stewed prunes are not trending on Instagram. You are not seeing stewed prunes on the cover of a food magazine. Why do you think you've been able to survive while so many have closed around you? It's not an easy business. It's a hard business. It's a labor of love, and it's a commitment. You know, it's a commitment by my father, my grandfather, and by myself to, to keep the uh, quote-unquote institution going. Our strength is that we're a food store for those who demand the best. We give the people the best that money can buy. We don't cut corners, whether they're having orange juice in our restaurants. We're getting the best, sweetest oranges that are on the market. If we're making a, a homemade cheese blend, so we're using the best cheeses, and it's all made from scratch. If it's a tomato, it, we buy what we call repacks of this. They're all hand-selected. It's not like you buy a big box of 25 pounds and some good or some bad are all mixed in. Uh, for buying the smoked fish, people don't realize that they grade fish out like they grade meat. Like you could buy meat that's prime, you could buy meat that's choice. But And you smoke all the fish in-house? 
no, we have different purveyors smoke for us. You're not allowed to smoke in Manhattan. Maybe smoke cigarettes, but not uh, not fish. Smoke weed, not fish. Exactly. They probably smoke weed, so I don't know if this plays in Colorado, but I guess <laughs> out there they celebrate the very high holidays. That's right. So I coincidentally met Gary a few weeks before this interview. I was in New York City. I realized that I had never been to Barney Greengrass, which felt like a complete betrayal to my Judaism. I also have still not seen Schindler's List, but I decided out of the two that I would go to Barney Greengrass because there's bagels there. Uh, So I went in to get my mom these black and white cookies because I was going to see her the next week. And my boyfriend has this friend, hi, Ben, who used to work at Barney Greengrass. So we chatted up Gary about him. We took a photo together. And then it was so it was was kind of a little annoying that I interviewed Paul Reiser three weeks later and he said Barney Greengrass. And I could have done the interview in person, Paul. I don't know why I'm getting mad at Paul. Maybe because I want a bagel and I can't have one. But I was really surprised by the look of Barney Greengrass. It was very different than I imagined because I know that they attract a lot of celebrity customers. I had heard on Bon Appetit's podcast that the editor-in-chief of The New Yorker, it's his favorite place to go. He goes every weekend. Uh, So I just kind of thought it was going to be fancy. But basically, it is a deli. It has those classic rounded glass deli cases, and the walls are just shelves with products. It looks like a pantry. And then there's uh, some old tables and chairs just in the middle of the room. But I do love the Barney Greengrass sign outside. It's these huge letters, and it's kind of like a Flintstones font. It's so good. The tables and the chairs and the wallpaper inside range from the 1930s to the 1950s. It's all original stuff, which is why it can be a popular place to film things. If you saw the movie... um Extremely loud, incredibly close with Tom Hanks. There was an episode of 30 Rock a couple of years ago with John Hamm, Revolutionary Road. You ever see that movie with um, Leonardo DiCaprio? You know, that was like a period piece. They used our old dining room as sort of a 1950s Midtown restaurant. They filmed Law and Order here numerous times. If you ever see You've Got Mail that took place here on the Upper West Side, there's a scene where you can see my dad in the background. There was Meg Ryan and Gene Stapleton having lunch. They took place here at the store here. Yeah, so we've had had our share. Even on Seinfeld, they didn't film it here, but they gave us a couple of mentions. I think uh, Elaine was sitting with her girlfriends and they're sort of pushing her, Elaine, you got to have a baby. And she's trying to change the subject. She goes, I had a piece of whitefish at Barney Greengrass the other day. And then Jerry and George are walking in the next scene. Did Elaine tell you about that whitefish she had? You were kind of born into this business. I don't know how it went for you, you know, if you had planned to do something else and you fell into it. Uh, Was this a choice or would you have done something totally different if you had a choice? Or was it Jewish guilt? Is that your question? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of both. Um, The way I started learning the business is before, like, one of the Jewish holidays, which is very busy here. It's for Yom Kippur. So people that are not necessarily observance all year round. It's one of the, the, the holiday that most Jewish people observe, and they fast on that day, and they break fast. The biggest item that people buy is smoked fish, not just myself. Any competitor or anyone in this business is selling a load of smoked fish on that day. So back in the day, my mother and my father as well would be cutting and cutting and working late at night, and I would come in and help and from there, learning how to slice fish, and eventually went to school, went to college. But then as I was graduating, you know, felt something inside of me that just said that this was something special. And I try to put my twist onto it. Like, for example, we used to, I, I built up our mail order business, so we ship all over the United States. We have an online store as well. How long have you worked there at this point? 
over 30 years. Is there somebody lined up to take over after you? I don't know. We've got a ways to go. I, ha- I do have a son. He's 12 years old, so we have to wait till after his bar mitzvah when he realizes he's not going to play in the NBA but might own a team in the NBA, <laughs> and then maybe he'll, uh, he'll want to come into this business. The other B, not bagels, but basketball. The two Bs of his life. So is this food just in your blood? I mean, you know, people who work in a restaurant tend to eat that food all the time. Is this something you get tired of, or do you still love it all? I do love it all the time. I guess it's not in my blood. It's more on, on my hips and on my uh, on my right tire. But uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, there was one thing that my dad did do for me. He used to make my lunch every day for school, but he had to make two sandwiches, one for me and one for my friends. Everybody wanted a bite of my lunch. So I had to bring two sandwiches to school every day. What kind of sandwich would you get? Oh, it would vary it up. Nova Scotia and cream cheese on a bagel, whitefish and Novi, cream cheese on a bagel. It was popular. That got me points with the kids. Paul Reiser wants his last meal to be a bagel with locks from Barney Greengrass. Do you know Paul well? I do know Paul. He's a great guy. Known him for a long time. Listen, he's a real gentleman. I mean, his mother used to shop in here. Uh, she loved her pumpernickel bread. <laughs> but she was, you know, she's just a really wonderful person. And how many years has he been coming in? Oh, I don't even know. Could be 25 years, 30 years. You know, when we both had hair on our heads. <laughs> Those were the days. I mean, he comes in with his family, sometimes with his friends. He loves smoked salmon. He loves whitefish, loves bialis. So a cute story, if you're familiar, he had his show Mad About You for yeah. many years. So there's a, a role player. His name was, you know, John Pankow, who played Cousin Ira on the show. He, had, he was on there for many years. But before he got his sort of steady role, he actually lives in this neighborhood. And he told me, oh, I'm going out, you know, I have a... You know, I have a guest guest appearance on uh, Mad About You. He says, oh, you're going to Mad About You. I says, you got to bring Paul. If you want to get the job, I says, you bring him Whitefish, Nova, Bialis, and you'll be in. Sure enough, he schlepped it out to California, brought it to Paul. It's all history. I think he's been on, he was on the show for at least three or four years. That's because bagels are magic. Okay, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, some last words from Paul Reiser. Not like he's going to die just last words on this podcast. Paul Reiser loves food, but he's not a foodie. He's not a big food risk taker. He's not a cook, but he likes what he likes. Here's what I've learned in my years, that sometimes the most fascinating food is the simplest. The first time my wife and I went to Italy, and everyone said, oh, you know, the food is great, and you had the pasta and all these great rich foods. And we were in, in Tuscany, and we were like just stopped at like a corner grocery store just like for a snack. And we saw these tomatoes that were the brightest, reddest tomatoes. And we said, well, we just got to have them. And we took the tomatoes, and we sat on the steps of the, and we ate it, bit into this tomato, and we both went, what is that? That's like the greatest thing I've ever had, because apparently tomatoes what, in America, they're just been pasteurized or chemicalized or whatever. They're not uh, what a tomato was meant to be. But if you go to Italy, and you go into an untreated actual, actual tomato, it'll make your head explode. It's that good. So I can, if I had to list off some of the best things I've ever eaten, they were great because they were so simple. You know what I'm saying? Well, thank you so much, Paul. It was so nice to talk with you, and I hope you enjoy your time in New York. 
If you want me to bring you anything, let me know. You need oh. no black and white cookies. Make sure you get to me before, like, next week. You know what I need? Because it was the one thing that I forgot, and we ate so much that I don't think there's any pizza left in New York, but I forgot to buy a box of devil dogs. See, now, I was never a devil dog fan because the devil dogs did not have icing. Uh-huh. They were little, and they were a little too cakey for my taste. And they had a, a chemical smell that somehow if the icing concealed. So it was the same <laughs> stuff. So I enjoyed a ring ding, which was like a hockey puck with chocolate cake and then icing and then cream in the middle. But the devil dog, I always felt, was the loser of the group. I don't respect you any less, but I think you did better with a black and white cookie. It, it, it shows a sophistication that I admire. Yodels were the small sort of log-shaped ones. And then some reason, I don't know why, we maybe just to keep them, we froze them. And then we realized we stumbled onto something because a frozen yodel. Uh, has that extra crispy, crunchy, cool to it, uh, that will knock your socks off. If you have an ice box, <laughs> if you have a freezer, and a, a yodel, I would suggest you try that. I feel like I just heard a commercial for yodels. Like you did a lot you of did. alliteration. That was you really did. It was crispy, crunchy, cool. You think I'd get a free cool. box of something from them, but no. <laughs> Thanks so much. And if you come down to the show, come say hello. I will. I'll give you a... I'll an, give an, a special hug. A special hug, exactly. A non-inappropriate hug. Entirely appropriate That's hug. right. Full frontal, though. All arms wrapped hey. around. Not one of those weird bro hugs. No. 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 We'll, we'll commit. Okay. Bye, Paul. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that was Paul Reiser's last meal. Thanks to Paul Reiser for being on the show. He has stand-up shows booked all over the U.S. starting back in 2019, so go check it out at paulreiser.com. There are show dates. He has all his books up there if you want to buy one, and you can see his latest TV and movie projects. Thanks to Gary Greengrass. Make sure to pop in if you're in New York. Gary will probably be there, and he will make a dad joke that you may not get, but you'll just laugh anyway because Gary is very charming. You can order smoked fish from Barney Greengrass if you're not in the area at barneygreengrass.com. What would my last meal be? <laughs> my last meal would be probably whitefish and novi with vegetable cream cheese, tomato and onion on a toasted bialy. There you go. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me. Theme music, as always, by Prom Queen. And make sure and follow along on Instagram. We're kind of new. I think I've been on Instagram now for like five months. I'm an Instagram baby. Follow along at Your Last Meal Podcast. That's where you can send me a message if you want to share what your last meal is or if you have a comment or a question. And if you can spare a second, just give us a quick rating on Apple Podcasts. Just giving it five stars or writing a little review makes a big difference. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal.